The following sermon was preached at Tower View Baptist Church. We are a gospel-centered, relationship-driven church that exists to know, grow in, share, and serve Jesus Christ. We do all this for the glory of God. For more about us, please check out our website at www.towerviewkc.com. you can ever do. So it took you years to get there. Thank you for leading us each week as we do. Well, I invite your attention to Mark chapter 10 this morning. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are in a lifetime study of the book of Mark, I think. So, uh, and as you're turning, I just want you to know, I talked to a couple pastor friends this week. I said, what is the longest book you've preached to? Some guys are on eight years of like the gospel of John and the book of Acts. So three years by this time next year, guys, you're good. That's actually the fast track. Uh, you're doing just fine. So we'll be in Mark 10 this week, uh, just looking at verses 17 through 22. And the, the sermon title this morning is Almost Saved. And as you're turning, just one more little announcement. Next week, we're going to do a, a kind of a topical sermon, uh, a little bit different than we're used to. But we're going to be looking at the state of our church, uh, what God has done and what we pray God will do among our church next year and in the years coming as we review the nine marks of a healthy church and talk about the future. And next week is Volunteer Appreciation Sunday. So we are going to recognize those, I think most of you in this room actually, who serve in some way, shape, or form as we get ready to uh, just thank God for all that he has done among us. That'll be next Sunday as we preach. Well, there's a story about two friends who met each other on the street one day, and uh, one of them looked very sad, almost on the verge of tears. And so the friend said to the sad friend, he said, what in the world has happened to you? Why are you so sad, my old friend? And the sad man said, well, let me tell you, three weeks ago, my uncle died and left me $40,000. Well, that's a lot of money. Why would you be sad about that? But you see, two weeks ago, the sad man said, my cousin, who I've never even met, died and left me $85,000, clear and free, all to my name. And he again, he looks at his friend, well, why would that make you sad? Well, you don't understand. Last week, my great aunt, twice removed, passed away, and I inherited a quarter of a million dollars from her. And by this point, the friend is looking at the other friend saying, are you nuts? Are you crazy? What is wrong with you? He's really confused. Then why do you look so sad? Because no one's died this week, and I haven't gotten any free money at this week at all. And so I hope that's not our outlook, but it is there. You know, we can come to a certain point, can't we, where we look and, and expect to get certain blessings God has never promised us, and when they do not come, we get sad and bitter about it. God didn't bless this way or bless that way. But that type of thinking, as, as bad as it is in a culture that loves money so much, is not the worst type of thinking that could happen to us. In fact, the greatest threat to our faith is not money, it's not atheism, it's the greatest threat is a false Christianity. The greatest threat is a false gospel because it tells us a couple things about ourselves, this false gospel does. It tells us that we think we're better than we actually are, and secondly, that we have a power and ability to please God more than we actually have. 
And like this man who got so upset because no one died and gave him free money, so too we hold on to a thought or a dream that God never intended for us to have, a false gospel. Because you will every day in your own heart preach to yourself a false gospel that recognizes that you are at the center of your own universe. But praise God, he reminds us that that is not the gospel, that we are powerless to do anything apart from Jesus Christ. And we are good at making that false gospel known. Jeremiah 14, 22, Jeremiah is praying, but he says these words, and it'll be up on the screen. It's a little hard to see for you in the back, but hear it as it's read. Jeremiah says, are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Lord our God? And we set our hope on you, for you do all these things. A false gospel always tells us we are better than we are, and we have more ability than we think we have, or or we we actually have. And that's exactly what we're going to see in the rich young ruler this morning. A very familiar story to us. It deals with a man who came to Christ to look for eternal life. And he asked the question that all of us wish that our unsaved neighbors would ask. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Wow. You can't even line it up. A softball pitch across the plate. Home run. Easy goings. Let's go out and eat at Denny's afterwards. It's that easy. This man came with the right question to the right person, and he got the right answer. But he left away sad like that man in the opening illustration because he did not get the answer that he wanted to get. He was so close to being saved, so far away from the truth, but so close to being saved. His toes were up to the narrow gate and the the, the doors were flinging open, but he took a million steps backwards. He drew back and did not make the decisive decision for Jesus Christ. He was interested in spiritual things, but he did not want spiritual things. He was the hottest evangelism prospect ever, but he walked away unsaved. He came running to Christ. He bowed in reverence. He spoke with respect. He asked what he must do to be saved. He was ready, but he was unwilling to call on Jesus to save him because he thought he himself could do just a little bit better. He wanted to add Jesus to his life so he could simply get the fire insurance. You know what that is? That's not on your homeowner's policy, by the way, or maybe it is, but he wanted spiritual fire insurance, a get-out-of-hell-free card, but he would not confess his sin. He would not repent from his sin. He would not surrender his own life. He wanted Jesus on his own terms. And as far as we know, he remained unsaved until the day he died. He was unwilling to give everything up. But Jesus kept the standard very clear. You come through me or there's no salvation. He said, if you were to enter the kingdom of God, you're to be like that that tax collector. You remember the story who beat his chest? said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Everyone, everything must be second to Jesus. There is no cut a deal with Jesus. Hey, Jesus, I'll meet you halfway. Jesus is going to teach this young man that the false gospel he had preached to himself is very false indeed. Do you know anyone like this? Anyone who thinks they're able sufficiently to carry themselves to heaven? Anyone who comes to the right place with the right questions and who hears the right answers but continues to make the wrong decisions over and over and over again. Maybe it's a parent, a friend, a child, or maybe this is you. But salvation belongs, a total commitment to Jesus Christ. The big idea today, just a summary of the whole lesson, is that fools believe they know enough about Jesus. But the wise would trade the world just to know him. 
a little bit more. This man is going to come today, and he is going to come before Jesus and ask the greatest question you could ever ask. And he fooled himself. And we may fool everyone else, but we cannot fool Jesus. Jesus is never against the human impulse for treasure. He's against the fool who thinks that earthly treasure really satisfies or really lasts. And any old fool can manage his behavior, but only the gospel can change who we are. So five brief traits about someone who almost got saved this morning. Someone who got so close, 18 inches, if you will, to heaven, but fell short of this. We're going to see that this young rich man is a seeking soul. He wants to know the truth. We're going to see his searching response. We're going to see his spiritual denial, how he denies what Jesus says. Jesus is going to give him a simple requirement. Go and sell all your stuff. And then we're going to see the sad ending, that he never truly came to know Jesus Christ. It would be a shame, wouldn't it, that if you're in this room and you have heard the gospel all of your life in church service after church service, if you would do what this young man would do. But there are so many, aren't there, in your family and mine. And let us remind ourselves that Jesus has just come last week talking about how to become a Christian. You receive it like a child. Not like uh, a simplistic theology, but you receive by faith, a childlike faith, the kingdom of God. With this in mind, just five verses of this very long narrative this morning, do you join me in standing as we read God's word, if you're able, in honor of God's word, Mark 17, uh, excuse me, 10, 17 through 22. Be reading out of the ESV, same as the Pew Bible as well. Hear the word of the Lord this morning. And as he, this was Jesus, was setting out on his journey... A man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Don't defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these things I've kept from my youth. And all these things I've kept from my youth. Hold that thought as we move on through the narrative. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Verse 22, But disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. How can one get so close to Jesus yet be so far away from Jesus. That is really the conundrum this morning as we look at almost saved, that fools will look at this and say they know enough about Jesus, but the wise will say, wow, I still need to know more and more about this Christ. Will you join me in prayer this morning? Fathers, we come before you and look at the picture of many millions, if not billions of people around us who want to know enough about what it means to follow you or, or to try this or that or meet you here or cut a deal there. Lord, would you use this episode to remind us that outside of you, we are spiritually dead in our sin. There's no response. There's no shocking that can happen from a human standpoint that you, Father, must send forth your spirit and resurrect our souls to exchange, as Ezekiel says, the heart of flesh, uh, excuse me, the heart of stone with the heart of flesh. And, Father, to raise us up as you did your son and Lazarus and so many others in the Bible and so I'm sure many others not recorded that happened by your spirit through your, your servants. Father, show us today 
especially what it means for those who seek after. And Lord, teach us today how to respond to folks like this rich young man in our lives as we go forward. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen. All right, you may be seated this morning. And uh, as you turn there, I, I looked at the clock, and we have an extra six minutes normal than usual, and you slept an extra week, an extra hour, so we're doing great. We've got an extra hour and six minutes to preach, and so uh, you just hang on to your hats as we do. But I want you to first see this man who is almost saved. I want you to look at verse 17, the, the seeking soul. Notice what it says here. Again, it says, and he was setting. Who was setting? Uh, Jesus was setting out on a journey. And remember, he had been in a house, if you go back to verse 10, uh, and, and the house, the disciples asked him about this matter. What house is this? It's a house in Perea. Jesus, in the next four months of his life, over the next several chapters, basically from now until the end of the book, or, or basically going from like November to April-ish uh, from his history, the next four months are jam-packed as Jesus heads to the cross and as he goes on this journey, he'd given them instruction about divorce, about remarriage, about kids, and now here comes this guy ready and poised to get in on the deal. And he ran up and knelt before him. Now notice that Mark doesn't comment about this man. All he says is that he's a rich ruler. Now uh, Matthew describes this man in Matthew 19.20 as a, as a young man. Luke describes him as a ruler, and together we have the rich young ruler. He's a young guy. He had influence. He had wealth. He was relatively young. We don't know exactly, probably in his 20s or 30s. He's very moral. He's upright. He's successful. He has everything under control. He's probably on the picture of GQ magazine and one dad of the year five times over or something like that. But he ran up. You don't just run up to anyone in the old century. He's excited about Jesus, man. And if he ran down an aisle in a Baptist church, they would have dunked him five seconds after he ran down there. He's so excited. He didn't have to get coerced. He didn't have to pray this prayer. He just ran to Jesus. And he says to him, good teacher. That right there tells you he still doesn't recognize who Jesus is. Because those who recognize who Jesus is call him Lord, call him Master, call him Savior. But he's one he recognizes is good. He has a good stature about him, Jesus does. But there's nothing here to indicate this man believes that Jesus is the Son of God. He just says he's good. He's one of many good teachers in Israel. It's like calling someone a good man or a good woman. But he asks the fundamental question of life. You ever just had this question pop up in your mind, Christian? What must I do to get to heaven? What do I have to do? Do I have to go through lifetimes of being a pig, a tree, a dog, and a hat to become, to hit nirvana? Do I have to do this, that, or the other? But he asks a very poignant question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? I mean, come on. If you're not uh, an evangelist type, if, you don't, if sharing your faith gives you the eebie-jeebies like it does all of us, Paul said that, he came in fear and trembling to the Corinthians, wouldn't you kill to have this conversation? I mean, has anyone ever walked up to you and said, tell me how to be saved right now? You would be like, what? Are you kidding me? But he's sincere. He comes to the right place with the right person asking the right question. And it seems very innocent, but do you see that little word there? What must what? I do. That's the whole tenor of the conversation. The question implies that he sees himself as having the ability to do whatever it was required of him. I mean, his business life is in order, his house is in order, his community is in order. If I can put this in modern terms, his 401k is ticking up. 
His, his, his FBI background check times six is all clear. His car is tidy. He has no tattoos. He doesn't drink or smoke or go with girls that do. He doesn't drink and drive. He votes a certain way. He combs his hair a certain way. And he went to the right schools. So clearly he must be okay. There's another compartment that's left out. What shall I do? He's young. He's wealthy. He's prosperous. He's successful. And this is what every mom wants their daughter to bring home. And they say, hey, mom, I have a boyfriend. This is him, right? But he doesn't have eternal life. But there is in him, as Blaine Pascal said, a God-shaped hole that can only be filled by God himself. And he's seeking, he's not searching for God necessarily, but he's, he's seeking, he wants the gift, but not the giver. He's, he, he knows there's something missing in his life. He's lonely, he's incomplete, he wants peace. But Jesus didn't come to take away his loneliness. Jesus didn't come to meet his felt needs. Jesus came to save him from the wrath of God that is due upon him he, his head for being a sinner. But he came. Church, can I speak a word to us for just a moment? Amy will put this up on the screen. A church goal for us is that we have a church that is so drenched in the gospel that everyone seeking the Lord has nothing to fear. Not a minefield. They have safety here. Can we pray for a church like that? I want to applaud what you all have done so well for so many years that when someone walks in here, they do feel welcome. Jack is, is, is Jack at 91 is our best greeter ever. He's got the bone-crushing handshake because he's been doing it for 75 years, and he's the biggest smile. You ask any visitor, hey, who'd you meet? I met someone in the back. His name was Jack. That's him. And we love that attitude. Our church does this so well. But may we be a church that is not just doctrine only, a dark, harsh environment, but we need to have a, a church that has a culture of welcoming people like this, even if they're a little off base like this man, welcoming them warmly, humbly, aware of their shortcomings. I mean, which church would you rather join? Would you rather join a church that, 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 that is just so teachy and this is what we believe, but their love is not there? Or would you rather have a mix of both, as the Bible calls us to? And if and this goes back to Philemon chapter 1 where Paul wrote to Philemon. He says, if, if he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, cha- charge that to my account. That's what a culture looks like that is marked by the gospel. It's not business as usual, but a healthy church is honest. There's trust. There's not, oh, they looked at me this way, so they must mean this thing. There's vulnerability. Man, I messed up, and I'm sorry about that. I apologize to you. There's acceptance, there's repentance, and there's joy. There's restoration, encouragement, and hope. And this man has come to the ultimate example of this. He's come to Jesus Christ, but yet he still does not see the full picture. And that's when we go to verses 18 and 19. I want you to see his searching response. You see his seeking soul, but I want you also to see the searching response. Look at verse 18. He says, uh, Jesus says to him directly, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And we'll stop right there for just a second. I mean, is Jesus straining at a gnat here? You ever had one of those things? You try and reach the gnat, kind of like the old Kung Fu things, you know, do one of these things. But Jesus is going to talk about goodness. But it seems to be indicating here, Jesus seems to be saying, if you believe some folks, that he's not really believing that he is God. I mean, look at this again. Read it again. Is Jesus deflecting away from who he is? He said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. What is Jesus saying here? 
Jesus is saying that God alone is good. God, in Him, there's no light, there's no darkness at all, but, but only in measuring our lives against His can we ever understand our sin. There's always someone worse off than we are. But like Isaiah 6, it says, woe is me. You remember that episode, don't you, when Isaiah's in the temple, and he sees God, and he, he, he comes undone. He says, woe is me. And he wants to add this holiness to his resume. He, he wants to, 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 this man wants to be so much better, gooder, if that's a word, than he already is. If I can just approve myself, if I can just get a self-help book, or, Jesus, tell me what I'm missing. But Jesus said, there's no one good but God alone. And what Jesus is saying, let me put the logic here just very succinctly, very quickly. Jesus claims only God is God. There's one God, right? There's one God. Jesus claims to be God. But, but where do you get that from? It's very clear from the verse. Look back at verse 18. Why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. Jesus isn't denying himself. He's just simply affirming what he knows to be true. I, being God, there's no one else but me. So Jesus claims there's only God is good. Jesus claims to be God. Therefore, if you follow the logic, Jesus is God. Friends, if we don't have Jesus as God, we have nothing. And this man's just asking a good rabbi some good things. But he's seeking after with a response. And, and notice how Jesus responds to him. Does verse 19 in your Bible say that Jesus asked him to pray a prayer? Did Jesus play just as I am a hundred times and ask him to walk down the aisle and talk to a counselor and all these things? I'm being facetious. Please hear me. Did, did he say, go talk to the pastor? Did he say, here are four spiritual laws? What did he say in response to this man? Well, how did he handle him? He gave him the law of God. Whoa. Why would he do that? He's got the hottest evangelism prospect ever that's ever come up to him, and Jesus is quoting the law at him. Why? Why would he do that? That's so Jesus-like, right? <laughs> Always doing things a little bit different. But what he's doing is he sees his heart, and Jesus being God, he sees his heart, and he knows he's nowhere near the goodness that God has, the infinite perfect goodness as we aren't. And in these, he brings him back to the moral law. Look what he quotes here. Have you ever done these things before? You know the commandments. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness and honor your father and mother. He quotes him the last half, the second table of the Ten Commandments. And he does this because the man needs to see he is not good enough to keep this standard. That seems so backwards, because if you grew up in a normal Baptist evangelical church, if they were walking down that aisle, you know what the pastor would have done with them at that point? Pray this prayer after me like a parrot, and as soon as you pray that prayer, you are saved. And you may never see that person ever, ever again. But they got saved. Why did Jesus do it different? I mean, if he's God, why didn't he say, just pray and ask me into your heart? Because if Jesus wants to come in the door of your heart, he's going to knock it down. He doesn't need your permission. He's going to come in when he wants to come in. Amen? You say, well, Darren, what about Revelation 3? I, I stand at the door and I knock. That's speaking about a church, not about an individual's heart. Friends, God is sovereign, and if he wants to save someone, he will save them. Yes, they repent and believe, but he will save them. That is the power of the gospel. Why is the church in America so weak today? Because we have forgotten that the power of the gospel is what Paul said is, is, is the thing that drives forth the machine that is the kingdom of God. 
But before he can get there, this man needs to see that he must keep the commandments. He's literally telling him, be perfect. Matthew 5, 48, be ye therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. But James 2.10 says, you sin one time and you're guilty of breaking the law. And he goes on to tell him these things. And Jesus gives him not the first four about his relationship with God, but the next six. First Timothy 1.8, but we know that the law is good if a man uses it lawfully. So, and Amy will put this up, but what the law requires, grace provides. What the law condemns, grace forgives. Jesus had to plow the way for him to see that he is a terrible person outside of the grace of himself. This is why, you know that old song, I fought the law and the law won. You know that song? I can't sing it. That's a generation gone by. But I fought the law and Jesus won. Amen? I fought the law and I couldn't do it. Jesus did it. The law is not a checklist to keep, but a benchmark we fail. And the Ten Commandments are good. They're still in operation today. Go back to uh, 2016 on our website. You can go over these because it shows us that God is holy, that we are sinners. And if we preach, all we preach is good news, no one will be saved because they have to have the bad news. If your doctor comes up to you at your appointment on Friday and says, you know what, you're pretty sick. Really? What am I sick with? It doesn't matter. You're sick. And guess what? I have the cure. Here, take this medicine. You'll feel a whole lot better. I don't know about you. I'd want to know what's in the bottle, right? We have good news. Someone might say, your house is not on fire. Well, that's great. Would you leave me alone? But if you found out your, your, your pets and your family were in that house and the house was on fire, but they were saved, that would be good news. You must prepare the bad news before the good news comes. The role of the law in evangelism is to weigh every sinner in the balances and found wanting, that they see apart from Christ, they can have no hope whatsoever. It says God is holy and we are sinful. That is what we need to do. So I want to take you to the third thing. Notice what this man says. Jesus knows he's a seeking soul. He he gives him a response, but now I want you to see thirdly his spiritual denial. Look back at verse 20, or excuse me, 21, no, verse 20 as he goes. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. You know, um, being on the streets of evangelism over the years, one of the great questions you ask someone if you really want to trap them is say, have you ever told a lie before? And every now and then, you get someone who says, no, I've never told a lie before. And you can look at him and say, well, that was just your first one, right? That's what it is. This man is lying through his teeth. He is so self-deceived that he really thinks he has kept all the commandments. Well, he's crazy, yes, but do you realize, with respect, there are Mormon friends that believe this? But if you ask an honest Mormon, have you kept the laws and ordinances of the gospel of Jesus Christ as prescribed to you in the, in, the, in, the, well, in the ordinances of the Mormon church, they will look at you straight in the face and say, yes, I have. If you look at many people in any religion today who are honest, they will say, yeah, I believe I've done enough to get there. So do, is there a bell that goes off? Andy, you want to hit the bell back there? Is there a bell that goes off? Ding, 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 and says, you've made it. There's not. And this man was so deceived, so deceived, that he missed the very thing Jesus was telling him. He's a liar. Matthew, in his gospel account, Matthew 19, it says, what am I still lacking? The man asked that question. 
It doesn't make sense to him that he needs to admit his sin and go to Christ. And, and looking at him, and, and he grabs him, and, scream, and, and Jesus basically screams at him and says, Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? You ought to be astounded at this moment that the self-righteous, arrogant, self-sufficient, externally religious man who should have known better. I mean, think about this. This man is a leader in the local church. Scary, isn't it? Just because you're in a church it doesn't mean you're saved anymore. If you're in a, in a garage, it makes you a car. Some of y'all, it's going to take a minute to really sink in. But he's read verses like Psalm 51 where David prayed, Behold, I was shaped by iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He, he, he's, he's heard that he came into this world a sinner. He's heard that, that the, the world is broken. He's deeply in need, and he should know that. But he doesn't acknowledge it. Self-deception is one of the worst things we can do because it's the reason we do the worst things. It really is. Most people assume they're good with God, so proclaiming the gospel without the bad news is at worst confirming their self-deception. Friends, does Jesus love us? Amen, he does. We would not be here if he doesn't. Actually, the next verse is going to tell us that. But don't be afraid about being needy. God meets every need. Be afraid about self-deception. Church, be afraid of self-deception as a church, that we've got it all together. We need to be the most needy church ever. Not just because there are needs, but because we need to keep that before God. But notice verse 21. Don't you love this next verse? Even though this man is so deceived, Jesus looking at him. This, this looking is like, you know, the look. You do, do you understand what I mean? Parents, you do this to kids. Uh, you, you know, uh, you grew up, as you grew up in church, you got that look from mom or dad or, or husbands. You get this look from your wife like almost every two seconds. But, but the look, right? He looks at him intently, one-to-one, mano-a-mano, and, and, and he hated him. No. What's it say? He loved him. Wow. How amazing is grace. How astounding is love. This man, being so prideful in the face of God himself, is told that he is loved by him. And friends, you should celebrate that grace. You should celebrate that love today because in your moments of rebellion, in in the moments where you are being your own defense lawyer and you tell yourself you're more righteous than you are and you have the ability more than you think, isn't it awesome that he doesn't turn his back on you but he still continues to love you despite you? What an awesome God. That love is our single cord of hope. There's nothing else that comes out of that. Guys, we have a God who even when we hit the ground hard with our sin, loves us to the degree that he loves us to the degree he still loves us. What an awesome God we serve. If you are coming today and you have royally sinned this week, would you go and seek your Savior? Even if you are self-deceived like this man, praise God, he takes us in by grace and grace alone. I want you to see not only his spiritual denial, but let's finish verse 21 and see his simple, the simple requirement here. Jesus tells him a very, very straightforward thing. Verse 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. Praise God, Jesus loves sinners. But if, I mean, think about this. 
I, 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 you know, I, I'm, I, I'm debating whether I want to ramp up my marathon training to try and qualify for the Boston Marathon, which is like the bucket list of marathoning. Jesse, I know you understand this stuff. We're crazy. We run for miles and do all this stuff. And then I think about myself, you know, that's just stupid. Why would you do that to yourself? But if someone came to me and said, you just need to do one thing to get there, my eyes would be as wide open as ever. If someone came to you and said, to repair this relationship, you need to do one thing, your ears would be perking. If someone came to you and said, to inherit $100 million, you just need to do one thing, you would be, whoa. But this man doesn't do that. Jesus didn't come to him and say, five or 20 or 300 or thousands, but you have not done one thing. In other words, since the same day Jesus came, the message has been the same. Repent and believe the gospel. Turn from your sin and believe that I am He. Enter by the narrow gate. Take up your cross. Become like a child. Be born again. You'll never thirst. He who lives with me will never die. He who believes in me will have eternal life. And not saying you buy your way into heaven, but anything that has become your God and your idol, you must dissolve it. You must remove it. In Mark 9, you must cut it off, pluck it out. You must repent. And this man would not do it. Jesus meant it. Matthew 6, 33, isn't this amazing? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things will be added unto you. No one can serve two masters. You'll either hate one or love the other. You can't serve God in football, God in your grass, God in your house, God in your country necessarily without having competing. It's either Christ or nothing. And this man did not see it that way. It's not wrong to have money. You know, and you know this many times, poor people actually, ha- who don't have money, idolize it so much. Man, if I just won the lottery, life would be so good. If I win the jackpot, don't tell me about that, please. Or if I finally had money, life would be good. But much of my learning to follow Jesus is unlearning to follow myself, as you'll see on the screen. When, when Jesus commands, follow me, he really means it. He doesn't say just partially here, partially there, but do it. Just as surely as night follows day, authentic disciples follow Jesus Christ. We don't need to know where, we only need to know who, and that is Jesus. And saving faith attaches itself to the Savior. Come follow me. You believe on Jesus, but there's action behind it. Saving faith is when you are committed to him, he talks to you in his word, and your faith is not passive. It reminds me of that man who came to Jesus and said, my father died, let me go bury him. You remember what Jesus said? <laughs> let the dead bury the dead. Follow me. Renounce anything and everything that is more important than Christ in your life. He who loves his father, his mother, his son, or daughter is not worthy of me. So let's see number five, the sad ending. What happened to this man? You know the story well. But verse 22, disheartened. By the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I don't know about you. What I find lacking in this man's response, he didn't even argue. He knew it to be true. I mean, if you thought about this for a second, this man has has already justified himself. He's already laid out his resume. So when Jesus says the very thing that he needs to do, there is no argument. He knows he's not doing this. And to be absolutely clear, we are not saved by what we do, but what we do shows that we truly are saved or truly are not. And I, you know, it's sad because he was so close and he made the wrong decision. And I want everyone who hears me preach 
each week my prayer is that they would leave sad, they'd leave mad, or you would leave glad. Because that is what the Word of God does. And we pray that. He's grieving. It's, it, it's, it, it's in the present tense. He's feeling sorrow of being crushed. He ran up thinking he had it all there. Then he kind of does the, the Linus mope or Charlie Brown mope out the other way. Why would someone say no to Jesus? Because the Bible tells us to. He says right there, for he had great possessions. That's exactly what it was. He offered him, you remember in the temptation of Christ, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world. Do you remember this? He said, if you'll just worship me, Jesus, Satan said, all this can be yours. And what did God say, what did Jesus say back to him? No other gods before me. Worship him and him alone. Worship God and God alone. This young man didn't fear so, so well with, with that offer. He accepted the devil's offer to live for the world and possessions. He would not let go of this world. The world had filled his heart and stained it and corrupted it, and he didn't want to let it go. He made a Judas decision to take the coins of this world instead of the infinite value and mercy and grace that is ours in Jesus Christ. What does this mean for us as we close out today? I want to give you three things, and there are plenty out there, but these three, especially through prayer and study this week, have come to bear as it relates to us. Number one, uh, number one is this, and, and you'll see it up there, and we'll go ahead to the last one, Amy, thank you. But what you win them with is what you win them to. Church, what we win people with to the faith of Jesus Christ is what we must keep them to in Jesus Christ. If we have a fog machine every Sunday, and I, that would be an interesting thing, uh, uh, well, I'll just leave that alone, but what we do in church shapes us. If it doesn't just inform us or entertain us, it makes us who we are. The worship service doesn't just cater to certain tastes, it develops taste. What we do in here matters because it allows what you do out there to matter to some degree. If we bring someone to Jesus Christ on the promise that if you believe in Jesus, all your worries are going to go away and it's just, it's just peaches and roses and flower beds everywhere you go, then we have gratefully deceived them when life really hits them, don't we? Or we bring someone to Jesus and just say, look, Jesus loves you so much, just, just pray to him. Then we have deceived them by not telling them the truth that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that they are under the wrath of God. What are you saved from? If we bring people to Jesus with methods or a message that is different than the methods and message of Jesus, then we have won them to something that cannot be sustained. This is why churches struggle so much. And I'm not against big light, well, well, I am, but I'm, I'm not against rock bands and things that churches do all the time. But some people are so drawn up into the emotion of the thing that when that emotional thing goes away, they have no faith. They just simply have a show within their hearts. It is not in the best interest of unbelievers we're trying to reach to appeal to consumeristic taste and interest. I mean, if Jesus really was like most evangelical pastors, he would just say, hey, buddy, come on down. What do you do to inherit eternal life? Just come on over here. Sit down here. We're going to pray a prayer. And when you pray this prayer, check mark, you're an even better person than you were before. Friends, that's not the gospel. That is self-consumerism that's been brought out of self-interest called America. Be very careful. The gospel is that Jesus died, was buried, rose again, and that you and I deserve the worst. We've preached on this in weeks ago. 
the gospel is, is that we are to repent, turn from our sin, and believe that Jesus died. If we win people to that, they will be brought to grow in that gospel. Some people are saved because of the pastor's personality, because of their speaking style. They can rev up a crowd and get it to an emotional high, and like a good salesman can say, come on down the aisle, and when you're ready to receive Jesus, come on down. And every time they want to get closer to God, that person has to have that spiritual high. If you've been to youth camps before, this is what a youth camp is all about. It's what conferences are all about. I'm not against youth camps and conferences. I've done them both. been a part of them both. But be careful that we don't allow the method to drive the message in ways that Jesus never did. If that were the case, then Jesus would have just said, come on down, let me wrap your arm around me, give you a little noogie. You know, I'm Jesus, I love you, here's a big hug. He gave him the law and the man walked away sad. Did Jesus love him? Yes, the scripture says that. But he loved him enough to tell him the truth. Secondly, what we win them with is what we win them to. But secondly, you are worse than you think you are. I am worse than I think I am, but in Christ, we are far more loved than we ever will feel we really are. You are more sinful than you could ever dare imagine, but you are more loved and accepted than you could ever dare hope at the same time. Praise God for that. Amen. The world says you are loved because of what you do. Jesus says you can now do all things because you are loved. If you are God's child, no matter how alone you are today, you are gloriously and eternally loved by the Father, Savior, King, and the Spirit. And may, may we boldly tell uh, that we are the chief of sinners, that we don't have it all together, that as your pastor, I'm going to fail you, Nelson's going to fail you, our deacons are going to fail you, but praise God that Christ still loves us. Salvation is ready for the worst of men if they'd only come to Christ. And if men are lost, it's because, not because Jesus does not love them, it's because they don't want to get saved. John 3.19, men love darkness rather than light. And you will not come to me unless you, uh, that you might have life, John 5.40. Friend, if you're here today and you are really doubting if God loves you and you have truly believed on Christ, He still loves you. If Jesus can look at this unsaved, unregenerate, non-Christian man and love him, how much more grace does he have for those who are already in his kingdom? And third, and, and we'll get here in a couple weeks in more detail as we finish out the story, but the abundance of life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. You know that. I know that. But you know what's going to happen in approximately, eh, approximately about, uh, let's see, about 12 days from now. Does anyone know? It's, it's a Friday, and it might have a word black attached to it. Black Friday, right? And then on the Monday following, it's called, what, Digital Monday or something like that? I don't know. Some of you are like, Cyber Monday. Thank you. Tina, if you need shopping advice, come to Tina, apparently. So I'm just kidding. But, but, but you know where this is at. We should be content with what we have. And then what Paul said is that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, not because we have this, that, or the other, but because we have Christ. Trying to find ultimate peace and protection and possessions doesn't shield us from suffering, but makes suffering more surprising and difficult. Everything we have belongs to God. This pulpit belongs to God. This iPhone belongs to God. This cool bank liberty pin that I always get from the bank belongs to God. May we steward it well. And church, no matter what God may bless us with financially here, structurally here, whatever here, our hope is not found in people, places, or situations, but in the one thing our Redeemer lives and is always with us. 
Luke 12, 15, be on your guard against all types of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions, Jesus said. We must learn to believe promises better than possessions. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I want to really encourage you with this. So, Christian, here's where it is. If you are a believer here, you have more than you have need in your life. You have more truth than you can ever live out. You have more possessions than you can ever use. You have more stuff than you can ever give away. Have you followed Christ to whatever end he's called you to? Non-Christian, if you're here today, the only way to heaven is through Jesus. Repent and believe the gospel. Let's pray as we close this morning. Father, we thank you for this, uh, this very clear episode from the, the rich young ruler. Father, that, that sadly he went away. As far as we know, Father, I pray someday in heaven that the recorded pages don't show, but maybe in your providence he actually did come to, G- come to your son, Lord. I don't know. Father, but as far as we can tell with, with what history we know, this man never came to know your son. How sad if that be true. How, how, how disheartening if that is there. Father, free us from the, from the, from the glitz and glamour of, of the American dream. Free us from the thought that we have to have this, that, or the other apart from Christ. Father, free us as Christians thinking, Lord, that, that, that the happy, clappy Jesus is the biblical Jesus. Thank you that your son is all joy, there's all peace, there's all these things. But thank you that you had, Father, through your spirit, inspiring the authors of the Bible to tell us the truth that we are sinners that we're headed to hell, but Jesus loved us, that he gave himself and so loved the world. Thank you for both realities of that. Father, protect us from believing that we are sufficient in ourselves, that we are better than ourselves. Father, remind us apart from Jesus, we have nothing. But thank you in Jesus, we are and have everything. Our identity, every need, every emotional need, every physical need according to your plan will be met. What a joy. Father, I pray this for our church as well. As we move forward, as we, as, as we draw up where you're leading us and taking us, Lord, it's all in your hands. Father, thank you so much. We pray these things today in Jesus' name and God's people said, amen.